The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. this time, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 37. We won't be reading the entire psalm, just the first 11 verses. And uh, I'm not beginning any type of new series. We, we, uh, tonight, we recently finished our Judges series, and I'm uh, not sure yet what new series we'll do on, on Sunday evenings. But this is a text that has ministered to me through the years and even recently, and as I reflect back upon my pilgrimage, my walk with the Lord, I find that the things that David writes about resonate with my soul. It just encouraged me um, to deal with, with matters of the heart. And there's a unique key word that shows up three times in this text and only once elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, uh, and that is the word fret. What, what is fret? Well, fret is to be uneasy to vex, to be troubled, or to worry. And uh, I confess that I come from a long line of fretters. And uh, we, we are a people who fret over our health, our finances, when we were in school with our exams, because we are weak. And we, we are vulnerable in this fallen and broken world. And three times David exhorts us not to fret, but to rather channel our passions towards trust and obedience in the Lord. And so as we consider this text tonight, I hope we can gain something, learn something about how we might enjoy God and delight in who he is. So I ask you to join me now in this meditation on Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. David writes, Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. Or like, for like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, you give us assurances in your word that you are with us in times of trouble. You exhort us not to fret, nor fear, nor be anxious. 
And so, Lord, we come. We come eager to learn, eager to trust you. We pray that you might open our eyes, and might, you might minister to our hearts. You would strengthen us to obey, to trust you and follow you, even as we seek after our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen. This week, my wife and I received correspondence from friends of ours who recently returned to the mission field of Syria. They had left there a few years ago after suffering a very difficult pregnancy that resulted in the death of their firstborn child, uh, largely due to the lack of medical uh, resources um, available to them. And so after a season of recovery and building up their family with additional children here in the States. Uh, They built up their support to return to Syria uh, to reach Muslims uh, for Christ. And then just this week, we received this newsletter from them with both joy and concern, announcing that they are pregnant, something they were not expecting uh, due to the wife's past difficulties. And so just as they were settling in back in Syria, it is time to return once again, back to the States so that she can have a special surgery, deliver the baby health, uh, safely, and uh, hopefully return back to Syria to continue their ministry later in the fall. But what uh, caught my attention was at the very top of their prayer request list was a request to pray for peace in their hearts and to not be anxious for the health of the baby the health of the mother, all the logistics involved with this transition, and even praying for the ministry team left behind who will be missing uh, their leadership while they are absent. As we enter into our missions conference week, I'm reminded by this letter from our friends that we're all very human even those who are supposedly super spiritual, who have the courage to go to mission fields where few of us would dare tread. Let's remember that as we welcome friends old and new this week in our home groups, in our various activities for our missions conference. We are a people who fret. We worry We are sunk by great fears, and and all these emotional states are very familiar to broken human hearts. And we partner together in the church body and with our missionaries, partnering in the work of the gospel, a work that knows its share of fretting and yet also delighting in the joy of participating in kingdom advancement. Tonight, we want to gain some insight from Psalm 37, how we might turn from our fretting, our anxiety, our fears, our anger and dreads, that we might learn to delight, to know peace and trust, and seek the glory of God in Christ. Like many of David's psalms, this one has multiple references to his enemies, We know the life of David, that he spent the larger part of his young adult life on the run as a fugitive, fleeing from the uh, tyranny and insanity of King Saul. Even after establishing his kingship, King David still had many battles to fight. Later in life, he 
even had to flee his, his own palace. Uh, feared for running for his life from uh, the rebellious coup led by one of his own children. You know, these, all of these factors would be enough cause for any of us to be anxious. And yet David writes, Do not fret because of evil men. Evil men attack the righteous. They oppress the poor. They arrogantly seize positions of power and influence over others. Yet like grass, they will wither. They will die away. Like the grass, evil men are plentiful, and yet they are temporary. For the day of God's reckoning is near. Isaiah writes in chapter 40, Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. That is our assurance, that God and his word alone last forever. God's justice assures us that he will deal with evil. In verse 10 it says, In a little while, and the wicked will be no more. They will stand before God in judgment. I suppose that few of us face enemies the way David did. We don't suffer such direct attacks. Uh, Modern parallels might be more fitting for soldiers fighting in far-off lands or many in the persecuted church who suffer things that you and I are largely protected from. And yet, as dwellers dwellers in this cursed world, you and I have many things that cause anxiety. In fact, as I look back upon my own pilgrimage, I recognize that anxiety was one of the chief characteristics to describe my own emotional state before I came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was during a season in my life, during my junior year of high school, that I was suffering great anxiety attacks. And I believe it was in this context the Lord drew me into a saving relationship with himself. Now, all outward appearances seemed that everything was fine. Everything seemed to be going my way with school and with sports and with friends. And yet, I was suffering deep and anxious thoughts about my future. I was repeatedly suffering frustration with with little things that seemed to be crippling my ability uh, to think straight and, and to make progress. As I look back upon it, I realize how I, I was deeply worried about deep things in my heart and, and controlled by my own desire to control my destiny, to pave my own way towards a happy and prosperous future. And I instinctively knew that, that my future was completely beyond my power to control. And as I began to converse with believers, I realized that I needed to surrender to God. I really need to simply let go and yield to his sovereign lordship in my life. But it took a while. It was hard to let go. It took many months of struggling before I was able to find that peace of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Romans 5.1 says that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's justice is satisfied only through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that sacrifice, God, in his mercy, gives us an alien righteousness. What Christ accomplished in his life and his death on the cross was, was 
a righteousness that he can offer to us, something that we cannot offer back to God. And it's his righteousness alone that makes us acceptable, pure, and unspotted before God, that we might stand on the day of judgment and be accepted and embraced into the kingdom. Jesus grants us this righteousness, this righteousness that will shine like the dawn, brighter than the noonday sun. And his is the only peace that can enable us to be still and to wait patiently for the Lord. As I study the life of Paul in the New Testament, I suspect that he too was an active fretter. And yet, uh, what's beautiful is you see in the flower of his maturity, he write, writing from a jail cell to the Philippian church, he says these words, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In a spirit of unison, both Paul and David exhort us to bring our anxious frets to the throne of grace. We're told so much as, as though to no longer spin your wheels on the icy hill of self-will. Rather, come to Jesus with your worries. Worries over money. Worries about the next doctor's visit. Fears about your children your children's children, and the trials that you wish you could spare them from, knowing that the Lord's ways are just, and he is merciful to those who trust in him. Well, underlying many of our frets oftentimes are great fears. Paul alludes to, I mean, excuse me, David alludes to fear in verse 3 as he, he references uh, that we will dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. That's an image of security. Now, security was a constant problem for the ancient people of God. They feared their great foes on many sides who threatened to devour them and cast them out of the land that was promised to them uh, through their forefathers. And yet, as you look through that this psalm, at least five other times, David refers to the blessing of inheriting or dwelling in the land. And for ancient peoples, one's identity was deeply bound up with land ownership. Now, today, you and I live in a land that enjoys relative peace and security. Most of us will go home tonight and sleep well without fear of enemy attack or uh, thieves in tr- in, uh, invading our home or the threat of angry mobs. And, of course, there are many people throughout the world who are not uh, so fortunate. And yet, though we live in a society ruled, uh, governed by the rule of law, we still have many fears. We, we fear the future. We fear, perhaps, the direction our nation is heading. We are afraid, uh, though, that we live, uh, no longer live in the Cold War, we live in a post-911 world where there's a threat of radical Islam. Some people fear that their freedoms and liberties are ebbing away. We fear the future state of the economy. 
the lack of social security. We could go on and on, an unlimited list of things to be afraid of. But as we look at the psalm, we realize that our only recourse is trust in God. God alone is powerful enough to protect us. And God alone is good enough and willing to care for us. The government in vain offers us us promises that it cannot possibly meet. If you pull out your currency, you'll notice uh, the classic statement on the back of your money, in God we trust. Never was a truer word printed on government paper. Let us hope that it remains that way to remind uh, future generations. But in verses 3 and 5 of this psalm, we're reminded to trust the Lord to commit your way to him, and to do good. You see, this exhortation to do what is good and right is part of the solution. The way to transform paralyzing fears is to engage in useful action. Because God desires active obedience. Like the king who went away but left his servants and trusted him with talents. It was not pleased by the fear and the indecisiveness of the one who buried the talent in the ground in the ground you know people who try to rob god of either his power or his goodness only rob themselves of the only peace they can know in a very dangerous and hostile world i believe this psalm challenges us to replace our gaping chasms of fear with great mountains of trust and confidence in the fact that God is faithful, the one who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. We all know that our fretting does not stop with anxiety and fear. Sometimes it manifests itself in anger. We get mad at this broken, fallen world. Things don't work right. People don't behave right. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We may lash out at those who oppose us. We may shake our fist at circumstances that are beyond our control. And so recognizing this, David exhorts us in verse 8, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. To find a New Testament equivalent, we could turn to James 1, 19 and 20, where he writes, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Sometimes our greatest fears betray our, are betrayed by our, our anger. We grow angry at our spouse for causing trouble, for for raising up issues in a difficult marriage. Our children bear the brunt of our anger as they suffer accidents, make mistakes, as we fear the threat of greater problems in their future, the way they'll turn out, whether or not they will walk with the Lord. At work, we might fear criticism. We might get angry over unjust treatment or perhaps uh, the fear of unemployment during anxious economic times. David writes, fret not. 
for it only leads to sin. Well, how do we confront this anger and this fear? Well, perhaps the solution is is learning the way of meekness. And meekness only comes as we recognize the meekness of God, the very compassion of God that is manifest by his love and forgiveness. One of my favorites is Psalm 103, 13 and 14, where it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. We are weak. We are frail. And yet, we need this God-sized perspective to overcome our petty fears, our anger, the hurts and the wounds that others have inflicted upon us. It was this kind of perspective, I believe, that enabled Joseph to forgive his own brothers who had committed a heinous act of treachery against him, selling him into slavery into Egypt. It was this high-minded view of God that helped him to appreciate that what man had intended for evil, God had intended for good. Up through at least a few years ago, for Mitch, much of my adult life, I harbored anger against various people, some authorities in my life who had let me down on certain occasions or uh, disappointed me. And it was only been in recent years that I have been able to reconcile with them, to enjoy and experience the freedom to forgive and actually show compassion upon them, empathizing with them in their own weakness. You know, I believe that God allows things in our lives that hurt us, that, that challenge us to wake us up. They're like signposts to guide us and direct us, to give us the opportunity to turn towards him and find relief and guidance. And when we come across those painful signposts, we have a choice whether we might follow him and embrace the way of humility, submit to God's ways, or take the wheel and steer ourselves into the ditch of bitterness. May we learn from the example of the unmerciful servant, that the, greater we, the, the debt we owe to God is far greater than the debt anybody owes to us. May we demonstrate a deep knowledge of God's grace by the way we show graciousness and forgiveness to others. Meekness in the likeness of Jesus gives us the freedom and the power to delight in the Lord our God. Well, lastly, we turn now to our key verse with unabandoned Christian hedonism. David has, the, has this to say in verse 4. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, I was struck last Sunday night during Alex Watlington's report from the Penn State University campus. During his message, he talked about how so many college students at Penn State and elsewhere indulge themselves in the pleasures of campus life, 
under the assumption, the ruling assumption that Christianity is all about trying to be good. And that Christianity is down and against pleasure and human desire. You know, it's sad how the enemy lies and communicates and spreads lies throughout our culture that God is anti-pleasure. God is some kind of cosmic killjoy. And I'm sure that many believers struggle to know what, what to do with human desire. Well, verse 4, I believe, affirms that human desire is made by God. That is fundamentally good. That's made for his glory. Psalm 103, again, verse 5, says that God, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David will write these words in his, his final words and prayers from the books of Samuel and Chronicles. He says, Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? He then prays, O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Sadly, his own son Solomon would not maintain loyalty to God and would pursue many desires in very unhealthy and indulgent ways. Solomon had a lot to write about desire and the dangers of excess, and yet never denying the God-givenness and the precious gift that human desire is. As I've been reflecting these past few months, I've recognized that uh, the great golfer Tiger Woods, in many ways, is like a a modern Solomon figure. Uh, His life illustrates for us that a man who arrives at the great peak of athletic, business, financial, and celebrity success, no matter how much success a person attains, it cannot satisfy. It's never enough. It cannot quench human desire. The the heart covets. It will pursue any path of immorality or anything forbidden in in a vain attempt to gratify that desire. The emptiness of the human heart is infinite and can only be filled by an infinite God. Now, turning back to desire, one thing I noticed as I was studying this word throughout the Bible, it seems that the vast majority of the New Testament references to desire are are negative, uh, very negative references. We see this in Jesus' parable of the sower, where he says that the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Paul also exhorts and Romans six twelve. therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So we see lots of negative references to human desire throughout the New Testament. And perhaps because of this reason and others suggest uh, an influence from Greek culture that our early church forefathers largely had a very negative view of human desire, that human desire is unholy, and that godliness is basically... A, a suppression and denial of desire. And uh, through the years, perhaps to counter this overemphasis, there have been many good men of the church, like Augustine, Martin Luther, 
Jonathan Edwards, and even in more recent times, John Piper, who have helped the church to appreciate both uh, the goodness and the God-givenness of human desire, recognizing that God has given to humanity strong bodily desires as a pointer, as a signpost to recognize that ultimately our desire can only be satisfied in God himself. C.S. Lewis famously illustrates the child who goes on making mud pies in the slum, ignoring an invitation to go uh, to a holiday at the shore. And he illustrates for us this, this problem, not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. We are far too easily satisfied with the trivialities of this life. We titillate with food, drink, sex, missing the very point that our joy is only made complete as we set our desires wholly on the person of Christ. As we set our desires, our text in verse 4 encourages us to learn to delight in God, to delight in the things that God delights in. God is a great delighter. You see throughout the scriptures how much he delights in Psalm 16:3. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones, in whom is all my delight. Isaiah 65:19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And one of my favorite pictures of father and child in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. But there is one delight that is God's greatest treasure. The greatest delight of God, I believe, is revealed in Isaiah 42.1, where the Lord says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. These very words are echoed at the baptism of Jesus, in whom the Father was well pleased. <clears throat> the key to proper delight. The key to true, satisfying desire is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater delight. There is no higher desire than to know and to love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you and I experience this delight? I know for me, and I commend it to you, that experiencing such delight begins with surrendering control. Letting go go of that that natural need for control, for certainty, resting in faith in one who is truly sovereign. It also involves taking our focus off of ourselves, to stop navel-gazing, to stop self-consumed self-centeredness, and learning to look from, from God's point of view on your life and upon the lives of others. True delight also means realize, recognizing your own weaknesses, your limits. You are finite. You cannot control. You cannot ambitiously pursue everything that your heart desires. You must learn 
contentment with the station that God has called you in life. I believe that true delight also means learning to trust other people and not be a lone ranger. And ultimately, of course, it means believing that God will provide for you. That you will will never find true freedom or true delight or satisfy your desires as long as you think your provision, your safety and welfare is all from your own labor. How do we turn? How do we turn our great frets into delights? It begins by delighting in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I was at a school function where my son goes to school here recently, and uh, my son will be in secondary school in the upper grades in, in two years. And we got a presentation from a couple of seniors who go through the regular uh, senior experience. And at this particular school, one of the things that juniors and seniors loathe the most is the senior thesis. This massive research project that's multi-pages and has to be defended publicly before a panel. And it's the most fearful, dreadful thing during the senior year. And yet, the alumni from this school, after they've gone on to college or gone on to wherever the Lord leads them, they have the confidence and the joy to look back upon that experience as the best thing that they ever experienced in high school. All of that fretting, all of that fearing, all of that preparation is transformed into something glorious, something delightful. It's like what Olympic athletes have been experiencing these last two weeks. All the hard work and labor, the fretting and fearing and trepidation as they put on the skates, as they try to make good in all their training and preparation for that glorious moment to ski down the mountain or skate their routine routine on the ice, the fretting turns into something delightful as they do what God has called and enabled them to do. You know, my wife and I are learning, learning as fretters how to become delighters. This past week, we suffered something fretful in our family as my wife's sister, who was near full term with her first uh, child, uh, discovered from the doctor uh, a lot of problems with uh, her, her internal organs and had to be admitted to the hospital. And in fact, just yesterday, had an emergency C-section uh, to deliver the baby, and thankfully, we praise the Lord, the baby's fine and healthy, and she's recovering after what was a pretty scary uh, situation these last couple of days. You know, the birth of a child brings great fret and yet great delight. Anything worthwhile in life involves a certain amount of fear and anxiety, and yet the reward is something delightful. You and I are walking through a valley of shadows, and we will be tempted to fret much. But along this, this journey, let me encourage us not to dismiss, not to suppress desire, rather to direct our deep-hearted desires on him who is alone our delight. As Asaph writes in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and the earth has nothing I desire besides you. In Psalm 20, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Let us pray. Father, you are a good and gracious God, alone worthy of our delight. Set our hearts and our desires away from the things of this world. May they grow dim as we see the glory and the brightness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be glorified, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.